0: Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen DiTrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Erica Ramirez and Jonathan Calvillo on the evangelical Latinx voter and the complexity of collective identity. For more information about today's talk, go to HTI Plaza.
1: Hi. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Open Plaza. I am Erica Amides. I am currently director of applied research at Auburn Seminary, and today I am joined by a dear friend, Dr. Jonathan Calvillo.
2: Hi. Thank you so much, Erica. Uh, this is Jonathan Calvillo. I'm assistant professor of sociology of religion at Boston University School of Theology. Uh, I do work on issues of ethnic identity, faith, class, urban sociology, and immigration. And I am Mexican American, originally from Southern California.
1: Jonathan, I don't know how long it's been since I've seen you. Was it AAR 2019?
2: I believe so, yeah. So it's almost a year ago since we were in the same vicinity in person, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. We talked in front of the the tables where people are hoping to get asked to dance by off, uh, book publishers.
2: That's right. That's, oh yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, I you were, yeah, I think you were working on something there.
1: Well, I invited you here uh, on the day right after you already did an Open Plaza podcast. Thank you for being available because I am so interested to hear your thoughts about um, the upcoming 2020 election and the way that Latinos of Various kinds of faith, but specifically also Catholics and Protestants are responding and um, either living into some of the narratives we see in the press or actually upending them, Um, not actually acting the way uh, the press storylines would anticipate or know how to digest. Um, So thank you for joining me on this. And I know we both have a lot of thoughts. So why don't we get started?
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Certainly. A lot of thoughts. Yeah. Well, that's a, you know, that's a big question to start out with. And certainly as we were sort of chatting about some of the things that might emerge from this conversation, I know that you've hit on a point, which is that Latinos have been difficult to predict. Um, You know, we're talking about a population that um, certainly, and it's almost become a cliche to say this, but, it, you know, we're not talking about a monolith here. It's not a monolithic population. And in terms of political engagement, in terms of voting patterns, um, we're talking about a population that has really shifted and, it's you know, in some cases is referred to as a swing vote. Uh, you know, you you hear these terms. I mean, I've been hearing this phrase for years now, but People referring to to the Latino, the Latinx population as the sleeping giant. Oh yeah,
1: right. Sleeping.
2: Yeah, we're still sleeping, right? <laughs> uh, uh, apparently. <laughs> and, and so, that type of description. So one of the things that bothers me about a description like that is, I, I recognize that behind it, maybe there, for some people, maybe there's a, a, a positive desire to. Uh, see more engagement
1: mm-hmm.
2: across the Latino population. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that that's a, a good thing, right? To want to see more engagement, uh, but I think it also erases the work that's already been done. Uh, the work that oftentimes at the grassroots level that uh, many Latino leaders are engaged in and have been engaged in for for years now, uh, and so. I think when people talk about a sleeping giant, they're referring to maybe wanting to see this larger percentage of people uh, get engaged politically. And, and I think we have to ask the questions of, of why in certain pockets we don't see that engagement. Uh, and, and then I also think we have to consider and recognize that we have seen the engagement in some sectors. So who who's been engaged, I think we should ask and and who isn't getting engaged and why?
1: I think a lot of these questions are not um, showing up really well in the press because the press has a very, um, to my mind, kind of a simple storyline, right? Like I, I think that just like so many other areas of our national life, we see a lot of polarization and one of the one of the kind of key narratives here is just that there is polarization by race or by ethnicity when it comes to parties. And I think some of the really facile descriptions are like the Republicans are the white party, right? (laughs) Yeah. And Democrats are the multi, multi-ethnic or multi-racial party. I'm thinking, for instance, of the really good and nuanced work by Robert Jones. Have you seen this, White Too Long? Yes. Which t- I heard a fantastic talk by Robert Jones. Um, and his work at that talk was rooted in some of the churches in Mississippi. So, And once I heard him talk about um, the way that Southern Baptist churches in Mississippi really Uh, precluded uh, the end of uh, a culture of white supremacy in their congregations. I mean, it was really, really startling. Um, But I'm thinking about how Latinos in different regions don't really fall into that simplistic narrative that they're sort of part of a white church that's been white too long, and that is going to vote Republican to maintain its whiteness. Um, I think that that would be a really hard Um, angle to come at when you're looking at the way that Latinos have been in Protestant churches and the way that they've acted at the polls for you know, since Nixon, right? So mm-hmm. since Nixon, uh, Latinos have been a thir- a good 30% of Latinos in the US have been voting uh, consistently Republican. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't, that doesn't change because now our optics don't know how to handle that. Does that make sense? And I would be mm-hmm. really interested to see, um, I doubt that Latinos will suddenly shift that in the 2020 election. And I think a uh, really good piece by 538 on, um, I think it's titled, There Is No Latino Voting Um saying basically the, the polls suggest that we're not going to see um, as much support for Biden as uh, we saw for even Barack Obama, or I think even Hillary Clinton among Latinos. Um, so when I look at that, what I, I immediately think is, um, just the simple the simple idea that Latinos who've been acting one way for several generations now are going to suddenly act different and obey the binary narrative it's just probably not true and um, I'm just going to put one one more point I recently uh, wrote an, author, an article with my friend and co-author Leah Payne for RNS yeah, and exactly. in that piece uh, we were talking about the way that among other things we were talking about the way that charismatics are sort of lumped together with evangelicals. So now I want to think about, you know, the way that if we're thinking about evangelicals as white, so the sort of the, the whitening of evangelicalism in the press. Um, one thing that gets occluded is the, the de-charismaticization um, of it, right? So sort of we're all in Southern Baptists now because we are sort of lost our distinction in the press. And one of the things we we're trying to point up in that article, again, in RNS, is to say, look, Trump's, one of Trump's key voting bases are Pentecostals and Charismatics, mm-hmm. and they are far more multi-ethnic than what I believe, for instance, Southern Baptist reports. So Southern Baptists are about 3% Hispanic. That's still 435,000 people by my math. So that's, mm-hmm. a, that's not nobody. Right. But um, when we look at groups like the Assemblies of God, just one kind of Um, charismatic group, they're closer to a quarter Hispanic by my last, like, so we're talking about at least 700,000 people. Um, So at the same time that I want to push back on this idea that uh, Latinos vote their ethnicity um, and that that will mean Democrat, I also don't think that Latinos easily map onto this um, evangelicalism is white um, trope right now in the press. What do you think?
2: Oh, I agree 100%. And I think that you and uh, your co-author, Leah, have Mm -hmm. done some amazing, uh, amazing work uh, in terms of uh, Dr. Payne, I should say, um, you know, have done some amazing work uh, around those themes in several publications. Um, So I've really enjoyed reading that and have taken away much insight from it. I, I think you're I think you're 100% correct in terms of problematizing this narrative that sort of washes over uh, this particular voting stream. So sort of lumping this Republican vote in within this larger stream of white evangelicals. And so it, it sort of becomes shorthand, right? Uh, as you've essentially been saying evangelicals become shorthand for white evangelicals or even just white. Right. And so it misses this, this major stream that has been present in the Latino uh, amongst Latino voters for, as you've pointed out for, for a number of decades now. And so we keep talking about that particular segment of the population as kind of an outlier Mm -hmm. and, um, And I'm going to get to that point in a moment because I do want to – I do see some, I think, some errors there, um, both on the progressive side and on the conservative side that I want to address. But – and I'm not even saying this as an apologist, but more so just as someone that's observing what's happening. And so I see this tendency to wash over this whole community or this whole kind of uh, tradition, uh, this whole kind of – you know cluster of voters as essentially white right and as you've pointed out if you actually parse out the charismatic uh communities there we're talking really diverse populations and so I, I personally and and this i draw from some of my own research and interactions with people i think that because many of those individuals and referring to latinos that are within those communities and people of other um ethnic backgrounds other people of color that are part of these diverse charismatic communities i think that when they hear these narratives of you know white evangelicals white evangelicals they start to tune it out because they say you know the media doesn't really understand us that's not me who the, who they're talking about that's not that doesn't represent the people that i'm around the communities that i'm a part of are are very diverse and so I think that that particular sort of, well, let me just call it whitewashing, that whitewashing of that community, essentially. Now we can argue, we can we can talk about whether people in those communities are being whitewashed within the community, that's, that's another conversation which we, we can get to that point. But I'm not there yet. What I'm saying at this point is just to say, the discourse, the public discourse, the political discourse which washes over Uh, Some of the diversity within these sectors, I think, is sometimes counterproductive because people themselves don't see themselves in that narrative. Mm -hmm. They're saying, wait a minute, I'm not racist. I'm part of this diverse, multi-ethnic congregation. And, yeah, some of us support Trump, but obviously we're not racist because we're diverse. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you calling me a racist doesn't really convince me of anything because i know otherwise just look at who i'm around right and so and i and i hear these type of conversations taking place Mm -hmm. right people will just point out you know these are my friends these are the people that i know these are the people i worship with side by side right i think for for latinos and i know there's this whole body of research on multi-ethnic churches and and that gets to the other question of do multi-ethnic churches actually uh, lead people more towards the, this, um, you know, standardizing of whiteness, you know, you ultimately measure yourself by this white standard with even within multi ethnic churches. So there's there's a conversation around that as well. And I think there are some, uh, there's some evidence that that is happening. But I, but I going back to your research, I, I think you're actually even pushing against that to some extent, when you say, charismatics are, are kind of a different Mm -hmm. We're talking about a different animal here. This isn't just white evangelical. And I think that there's a class element to that. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I think there's a major class element to that. And especially when we talk about Latinos, we're talking about often, not always, but often folks that even if they're upwardly mobile, they've also experienced some degree of being working class and even in some cases, some degree of poverty. And so... These associations that sort of get coupled together with like what evangelical equals white equals middle class you know equals
1: you know,
2: highly resourced, all these kind of things, i don't think these narratives are hitting these communities
1: i think you're, I think you're really right. I was just thinking about um, the way that <clears throat> the ag i was just on their website i i grew up partially in the assemblies of god so it was like visiting the website of san antonio right like culturally i'll always be um i'll always consider myself in part assemblies of god and i was looking at the way that they described who their like latin latinx adherents are and they said a lot of them are second generation um or higher right so i thought about generational differences and for instance myself i'm um i you know i'm actually third generation pentecostal and uh the fourth generation ahead of that was catholic right so i think um yeah it's a com- it's a much more complicated story i think getting back to like there there's not one latino vote but so thinking about generations is important and thinking about the priorities of respective generations might be more revealing right um but I also think, for instance, of Sammy Rodriguez, uh, who's a, a, just a kind of megawatt pastor within the Assembly of God and who has a seat at the Presidential tape, uh, Faith Advisory Council and who is in no way, I mean, occluded. I mean, he's not a lesser, he's highly influential in those circles. And um, there's just a whole world of charismatic Latino the you know, uh, ministers who are also highly involved in politics. So I think um, I think the idea that that you could really well read these people, this group of people who has access, who has tenure in both these denominations, tenure in the nation, does that make sense? We've been here for a long time, um, that they could easily be read uh, alongside, for instance, and this is another thing I wanna talk about too, uh, throw on the table is, um, what's going on with Catholics, for instance, in California. I know there's not just Catholics in California, but think, thinking that together with, for instance, a new story on everybody's radar, because apparently the Biden campaign is not doing very well with Latino men in Florida, right? And um, suddenly uh, people are saying, and I think Joe Biden actually himself tried to say something like there's, you know, Latinos are very diverse. Unfortunately, he said at the time also, not like the black vote, Right. But, um, yeah. but yeah. poor things, they all, they, you know, always speak all these gaps, but I think it's so hard to be on camera all the time. Mm-hmm. But, um, l- what you see now is sort of a growing awareness of, Oh, it's not the same to be Cuban, for instance, in Miami, as it is to be third, fourth generation in South Texas, as it is to be or a Catholic, perhaps in California.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, what, you're, what you're talking about, is, you know, you're referring to some of the uh, different intersections that help us to parse out these different voting patterns within the community, mm-hmm. right? So we mentioned class, uh, you know, religious tradition, which, you know, we'll, I think we can dig into further aside yeah. from charismatics, right, um, and Pentecostals. But, you know, generation is one that you hit on right now, which I think is super important. And I think, so here's one one way that I see this question of generation emerging uh, in some of the communities that I've been around, that I've studied and also just have interacted with. Uh, there's this expectation, and I saw, a, I should have saved this headline, but I saw this recent headline that said something about how, uh, you know, despite Trump's. Um, discourse on immigration—that uh, there are still some are Latinos. That there, there are still some Latinos that support him despite his discourse on immigration. Something along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. And so the assumption there is that Latinos should be pro-immigration, right? Because we're an immigrant people, Right, right? we're an immigrant people, and sure enough, many of us are immigrants, and many of us are you know, the children of immigrants, uh, or we're siblings to immigrants, or we have immigrant neighbors and friends and loved ones. So yes, immigration is, for many of us, a reality that's near and dear to our own experience. Um, And yet, when we look at the statistics, we're seeing that in the US, we have now a majority of US-born Latinos, right? So immigrant is is no longer the primary descriptor of of Latinos Mm. right and number two even for those that are second generation okay you might say well your parents are immigrants right so you should still care and I I I personally do and I and I believe people should regardless of whether they're second third fifth generation whatever because of I because I think it's the right thing to do it's the just thing to do but but in terms of just expecting, you know, well, if you're Latino, uh, you are, you are an immigrant, right? There's kind of this assumption and that's, that's not right. And I think politically we have to think about, and you kind of highlight, you know, in conversation, we've talked about, you know, being third generation, mm-hmm. right. Being third generation or, or beyond fourth, right. you know, we have these, these are the generations that are now growing, you know, um, I think about my children and, 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 you know, um, so I'm second generation, which makes my children third or like 3.5, because my partner is like, you know, she's already, you know, third generation. So anyways, I mean, it's, you know, we're getting into the average it. Yeah, exactly. So, but in terms of generationally speaking, we're looking at at a population that is getting farther and farther away from the migration experience. And in fact, some of the research that was done in terms of ethnic self-identification, this is, uh, some of this came out last year. Um, One of the findings was that, you know, there are, and people have been looking at this through the census where uh, increasingly you have a, a group, a segment of folks that identify as having some sort of ancestry in latin america and yet they themselves don't identify as latinos or hispanic Mm -hmm. or latinx or you know any they don't identify with a pan-ethnic label so that's that's a a population that is now on the radar and what they're finding is that typically one of the factors that tends to correlate with that group is that the distance from the mic from the migration experience meaning as they get farther away from the migration experience, they see themselves as Latinos less and less. Mm-hmm. So to just assume that someone having um, a Latin American background in their you know in their heritage that that makes them um, attuned to the issues of immigration, which I think is sad. I think I think we should be, but. To assume that that's the case that's that's incorrect and and so thinking that you know that appeal to immigration is is going to be the driving point oh, that,
1: right a simple thing it's actually gonna be a very complicated thing so actually this makes me think of a few things that i want to sort of pitch back to you as possibly something you might want to speak to and things that i've been thinking about um one is this idea that if you can if the two-party system if one side of those parties, so now I'm talking about the Democrat side, right? If they can sort of operationalize what we now know as identity politics to be a sort of meta identity, right? Like now, and there's some work on this, I think, but now like Democrat might go along with a, a meta set of identity markers, right? But that's a really powerful claim on a vote, right? So we heard this from, for instance, from Joe Biden, like if you aren't voting for me, then you're not black, right? This is a simple equivocation and it's quite a claim for Mm -hmm. a party to try to make on um, an electorate. And I think with Latinos you're seeing, it doesn't quite work that way, right? It's not, Latinos have not wholesale bought into the idea like if I have a sense of my ethnic identity, then I am Democrat, right? Um, And then the second thing I'm thinking is uh, about what you've just said about lived experience, right? Like if I'm, if I know for instance, I'm at least fourth generation in San Antonio, right? It could go further back. It looks like on one line, we've been there a long time, right? Um, then that lived experience is very interesting for us to, and I, I know this is gonna sound really fine, but um, for us to say like the diasporic identity should hold. Does that make sense so it 's like my sense of my ethnic identity as um, like for instance we talk about Latinidad um, that that's somehow going to be a felt reality even as you say if my immigration has, is, is if the immigration story of my family is several generations ago that I'm going to continue to I I wonder if it doesn't approach a sort of metaphysics is now what I'm asking you, because I want to sort of, I introduce this idea of a political theology on the left, right? And then I want to think about the political theology of the right. One of the best authors that you and I read is Dan Ramirez, and he was thinking about um, the way that a transnational consciousness was birthed in, in this case, he was talking about apostolic Pentecostalism of the early period, I think. So late very very late 1800s to the very early 1900 1915 period we're talking about um in his case he was talking about a trove of music that demonstrated that apostolic pentecostals were negotiating among other themes heavenly citizenship uh us-based citizenship mexican citizenship that these things were getting worked out for instance in song when you talk about, for instance, now, people's immigration histories are, can be in the distant past, not only, I don't wanna eclipse that we this is just one, one aspect of the story. And when you think about the kind of music that today, Uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics might sing, not going to be negotiating, for instance, those same registers around citizenship. What I wonder if we are, is that we aren't getting a little bit too metaphysical in our sense of like how people maintain their ethnic identity. If there aren't songs, if there aren't experiences telling people that they are in some senses a post-immigration people, how are they supposed to maintain that sense? Um, And do, and does today's uh, cycling through of identity politics easily then replace that lack of experience.
2: And yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, wow. wow, you've you've said a lot of good things there. Um, this is yeah. It's
1: just two sociologists talking.
2: So there, there you go. You've stirred up a number of things in my imagination here. So, um, one thing I'll say just right off the bat, one thing that comes to mind is uh, institutions matter, mm-hmm. and institutions are powerful uh, can be can be powerful catalysts in sort of enlivening a sense of collective identity mm. um, that institutions or I'll say it like this institutions legitimate particular identities now it isn't only institutions there are other ways that um, collective identities emerge and, and, you know, form as a, you know, a group, a sense of groupness. Right. Um, but I've, I've come to the place where, you know, as I'm looking at histories of, of, well, let me say like of our peoples, you know, uh, I'm really seeing how as institutions emerge, they tend to give people a sense of, oh, this is real, you know, this continues. Now, certainly there is space for looking at the maintenance of identities and traditions from, I guess we could say the subaltern or, you know, from the margins, um, which I think Dan, you know, Dan does a lot of that. Uh, but even nonetheless, I think that there is, we'll see this interplay between um, folks being innovative at the margins, but then also at times having certain um, Institutional containers to help move along certain uh, markers of identity to help legitimate these particular uh, symbols and reminders. Uh, oftentimes, institutions will serve as sort of um, containers for memories, and you know, t- to let us know like what are the because our memories are selective. Like these are the aspects of our you know origin myths that we should maintain things like that and so when, when we think pol- in terms of politics we have to think about some of these institutions that help folks remember like these histories that we've come from and unfortunately I think that some of our institutions have amnesia you know or in some cases we don't have the 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 institutional sort of depth to maintain some of these histories uh and I can say part of that is churches, but I think you know some of this has to be within our educational institutions. Um, Some of this has to be within our civic institutions as well. In other words, when you're getting these messages from from various nodes of activity, they remind you, they they let us know, like you know we've been in this struggle for generations. Um, That's one of the things that I that I try to highlight in one of the chapters of my book. And I'm not a historian, I'm a sociologist, but I had a chance to dig deeper into some of the history of the communities that I was researching. And I was blown away to find how these struggles that we are seeing today have been going on for over a century. And within people, and in the case of the communities I was researching amongst people of, you know, Mexican identified or of Mexican origin, uh, populations, right? And so, for me to understand, so so history is part of it, right? History is part of it. The other thing that institutions do is that they provide us with uh, a here and now space to to organize, to reconceptualize, to to remix where we've come from and adapt it to our current situation. And so, I think that that churches have been uh, important for that. And so let me let me mention now the Catholic Church, because in the communities that that I've done research in, I've seen that the Catholic Church has played really a critical role in helping people to organize at the community level. And and, and I'll say this, even even organizing for religious purposes is still organizing. Uh, grassroots organizing that helps to mobilize a community. Uh, even if it's for, let's say, we're going to organize a procession, um, we're going to organize a prayer gathering, things like this, which were activities that I participated in in the communities that I was um, doing research in. These are still forms of community organizing. Totally. And so then when I see um, leaders that now have uh, uh, a focus on political initiatives, um, whether it's voting or just issues affecting the community, there's already a structure there that they can work within. Uh, and oftentimes these are structures that are homegrown. Um, and, I, and I'll say this, oftentimes it's, it's women in the community that are um, really uh, the catalysts mm-hmm. at the local level. Uh, I mean, they're the ones that oftentimes have the, the contacts and the authority the, the local voice um, that's that's heard. And so, and so I'll see some, you know, I, I had a chance to see leaders coming in and, and helping to organize community initiatives, but it helped when these communities already had strong networks based in the neighborhoods. And maybe it was, you know, a group of, uh, and in this case, I'm talking specifically about um, some of the Catholic parishes I studied. You know, you had um, oftentimes women gathering to pray, or having certain devotional practices around uh, a particular community altar uh, or neighborhood associations uh, or hometown, um, let me say it this, this way, hometown associations. Uh, so looking back at like a, a, a sending region from, from the sending nation where oh. they said, okay. So that was one way that I saw um, the Catholic Church really helping local communities to maintain a sense of ethnic empowerment mm. at the at the grassroots level, mm-hmm. right? And so when the right leaders were in place that had sort of the political vision, uh, they could often partner with others that were, even if they weren't doing outright political work, and sometimes that's because uh, you know, immigration status or other reasons, and yet they were still able to mobi- help mobilize And the best efforts were when really the local people were leading it, the local people. So so I saw that with the kind of first and second generation partnering together. And the
1: Catholic churches?
2: Yeah, within within some of the Catholic churches um, that I observed. Uh, I'll add to that though, in terms of this idea of ethnic identity, um, another theme that I saw emerging from the Catholic church is this connection to indigeneity And and I'll even add to Afro-Latinidad. Oh,
1: that's great.
2: So I saw aspects of that. And these are predominantly Mexican communities that I was studying in. And so, yes, even Afro-Latinidad was present there. Um, We had immigrants from uh, communities in uh, Guerrero, Mexico, that were uh, what we would consider Afro-Mexicanos. And so... Um, The Catholic Church provided space for these groups to have hometown associations, to plan activities together. And so these, again, provided containers for these ethnic identities. And so you see the second and even third generation kids, you know, having a sense of this is where we're from. We organize at the local level. We do these gatherings. and, And so it helped to maintain this sense of rootedness to the homeland,
1: mm-hmm. but also
2: often tied to indigeneity and Afro-diasporic identities.
1: Okay, I have to chime in here. So I wonder, some of the best reading I did during my uh, comprehensive exams, I, I did some reading of like the, the early writing of Catholic authors on what they described as like the leak. Of, some ca- of the leaking of some Catholics to Protestantism. And so this was like, I think it was like in the 70s, if I remember correctly. So I started reading, for instance, Timothy Matovina, I read uh, Stevens Arroyo and Anthony Stevens Arroyo, and also Ada Maria Sassi So I got a really good um, feel for how. Catholics, because there was some retrospective work, right? So it was some early writing uh, about um, how the reception of meth- Mexican Catholics, Catholics, for instance, from around the time of the Mexican Revolution, so again, right all the way back to the early 1900s, right? So, um, and they were talking about uh, the the way that Mexican Catholics wanted to worship in their parishes, so I was I was reading some writings by priests, and they're kind of complaining about some of the things that now that you're highlighting are effective means of institutional memory. Yeah. So uh, these American priests were sort of saying like, oh, these Mexican Catholics, they're constantly wanting to pray to Our Lady. They're constantly wanting to do their processions. Like sometimes they wanna do their processions all night. Like we're, we're having a hard time Americanizing their Catholicism, right? And um, so it's really interesting when you say, for instance, like the, the, uh, the capability of institution to serve as a place for memory, right? Sometimes, right? Sometimes, and in fact, maybe that's true, but I'm thinking of the struggle actually that Mexican Catholics in California had to maintain their Mexican, what we would call sometimes folk Catholicism, although I don't want to imply any of sometimes the denigration that that term sometimes means, it depends if you're reading who you're reading, right? That, that you get a sentiment of that, a drift of that. So yes, I see what you're saying about the, the capacity of institutions in certain modes and forms to be a stronghold for memory, but that wasn't necessarily going to be the case. I mean, that took a struggle for, and, and actually, I think, around Vatican II that, come up, that comes up again, like sort of this thing like where there's like this heavy move to theologize Catholicism. And like what you're talking about is a subset of that conversation again, because we're talking about, sorry about the background noise, we're talking about um, practices, right? Like you're saying, look, these practices, these forms of community organizing, we get together, we have meals, or we have, what have you these practices, maybe we have perceptions, maybe we have, a, maybe we have a feast, those are a key means of community organizing and when they are in an institution can really perpetuate memory. Yes, when institutions let them and there are often really powerful forces within institutions that make that um, dicey, which brings me to my next question to you. Okay, um, so I have written about, one of my articles in the Washington Post was um, about Pentecostal anti-science attitudes, which I I interpret as not an incapacity to be scientific, but a distaste for experts that I would again link to anti-institutionalism. So some of, and I I kinda wanna go at this question with you this way. Um, When I think about anti-institutionalism and the Mexican revolution, and sort of the anti-clericalism of the Mexican Revolution, and I don't—I hope I'm not going too far afield of things that you've worked with. But um, in the U.S. around the same period, in uh, the early 1900s, we're seeing a rising anti-clericalism. It's not then full force. But out of the Mexican Revolution, we're also seeing anti-clericalism precisely because people are wanting to revolutionize Mexico, and they're seeing the Catholic Church as a stalwart uh, strength, a pillar behind Mexican governmental leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to phrase this in the question to you is, what about anti-institutional uh, Latinos who might then be participating in anti- anti-institutional cultures in the US? what is the, I guess, the risk to memory? Because I actually accept, even though I've been pushing back, I accept your statement that institutions play an incredibly important role in helping to maintain identities that are at a generational distance from experiences we've had. What happens when a culture or subculture gets at odds with an institution um, or the institutional? right, as a category, um, does it then mean that they're more likely prone to rupture in identity, can't maintain that identity? I know this is just, just off the cuff, but what do you think?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, uh, a couple of things. I mean, sometimes folks that are anti-institutional uh, end up founding their own institutions. True. And so uh, in some cases, you know, and and You know, in some cases, they think, "Well, we we are the anti-institution." You know, we are uh, not like that other institution. But they end up founding something, an association or something. Uh, In some cases, uh, we may be talking more about a movement, uh, a social movement. You know, where something emerges that now becomes a counter movement to a particular institution. And so, uh, movements movements can energize memory as well. Mm. And one thing that's powerful about movements is that sometimes they can help to perpetuate certain uh, myths. And, and I use myth not as a, you know, a falsehood, but, you know, a story that um, uh, that provides meaning for a community. Right. right. Um, they, they may help to disseminate a particular myth even beyond that community that started the movement, you know, so movements can, can also be powerful engines aside from institutions that help to sort of solidify in the public imagination, a particular story. Now, of course, movements are sometimes opposed and, and we're seeing that right now. We're seeing like movements kind of butt heads with each other and tell counter narratives to each other, right, in some ways, you know, well, you know, systemic racism, oh, it's not really a thing. Uh, versus, yes, we are still suffering from the effects of systemic racism. Uh, and so we're seeing these, essentially these are counter stories, counter narratives, right? And so this resides largely, these conversations are taking place largely in the realm of of social movements. Um, and then the other thing that we have now, this is more recent, of course, but, um, but you know, I think that this is the way things are gonna be now is we have social media now. And so we now have to contend with the effects of social media uh, regarding this conversation. I now wonder how social media will help shape our memories. Uh, and liter- quite literally, I mean, it is changing our capacity for memories as individuals. Yep. Oh, gosh. The way we just sort of now rely on the technology.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there are some real kind of micro level effects that we're experiencing, but I think that in terms of group identities, ethnic, ethno-racial identities, we have to think about how movements can bring certain stories into our imagination and solidify them. And I also think that now with the advent of social media, thinking about how certain, uh, certain narratives are going to be essentially stored you know, in the cloud. I don't know what that means. But there are people doing good work around, the, around this. I, I feel like I'm, you know, Johnny come lately in terms of examining this. But One
1: cannot know everything. Okay, so I have to kind of pivot back on, on several of what, the points that you just made. So I agree with you, for instance, that movements can tell counter counter stories, right? And I, I wanna mention, for instance, Black Lives Matter and then receive it into this conversation, um, again, by highlighting something that I just pointed up, which is, a rupture in memory. So I'm looking at, for instance, conversion. One of the one of the things about conversion is as a historical rupture. Like once I was lost, and now I'm found. My my whole identity is being renovated. Right. I, this is a new moment. Um, and if you think about rupture from institution, right? Like um, we had our own. Right. We've had our own. We've had our own ruptures as a nation. Like ours is a nation of rupture. Right. We are out here. Um, we're no longer part of England, we have our own founding myths and narratives, like we, in our short history as a nation, both as a nation and the churches within this nation have in their recent histories ruptures, is sort of my point, and I'll just make that very clear, Um, you know, the rupture away from Catholicism, right, like my great-grandmother is Catholic my grandmother was Pentecostal, right? And there's like this deep fissure between the two. There's like some antipathy. Um, and so when you're trying to rupture from something you used to be part of, you have ten, generally have a negative view of that thing. Um, so there's like anti-Catholicism in my, in my uh, family lines. And this is a story that goes through South Texas. And I sort of want to, now I'm sort of saying with so much rupture of our historical consciousness right, with so much producing of an identity that is ruptured against you know, national identity affiliation or in, religious institutional affiliation. Um, it seems like the ideation around, for instance, the 1619 Project, Black Lives Matter, it's like it's still, we're still dealing with the historical aftermath of slavery and it's it's taken different forms, but we've been at a disadvantage for a long time, that that is, uh, among other claims, a historical claim, right? Like this is a history that is still relevant. And so I'd like to ask you whether um, you think that it is fair to say for, for cultures who don't specialize in history and don't perpetuate histories, and social media is another version of that conversation, um, is there just a sort of historical amnesia that is now affecting our ability to be good partners in a, a movement for justice? Does that make sense? Is a lack of histori- like historical acumen or a willingness even to be historical cultures, which are not very historical, right? If I think about subcultures that don't do strong historical work, right? If there's no value for history and no Real diligent maintenance of one's own history, even family lines um, can be really hazy for some Americans. They might not know stories three generations back, four generations back. How does it land to, to have a movement saying, this is not just a history, but this history is the most important history about the United States. Does that make sense?
2: Yep. Oh yeah, no, I, I mean, I think what what you're asking is central. And I think that this is part of, you know, it may seem some people may think this is a tangent. I actually think this is one of the central questions of the election. Mm. I think it's our grappling with the history of this nation, uh, specifically in regards to our history with Black people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And... I think also we have to consider the indigenous population as well, which I'll I'll come back to in a moment because I think that's important also. But in terms of, you mentioned the 1619 Project and you mentioned this idea of history. I think that, I don't necessarily think that some groups are not about history. I think everyone is about history in some way. I just think that some, some folks will just kind of accept a certain history in a very superficial manner and sort of adopt the narrative and just kind of think like, this is the story I'm gonna rest on. This is the story that I'm that I'm just gonna cruise along with. And, uh, and I think what what's happening right now in this nation, when, when we look at a movement like Black Lives Matter and just in general, uh, the movement for the flourishing of black lives, mm-hmm. just in general, right? Even be, even before BLM was around. Um, I think that in many ways, it's forcing our nation to look back to its history and not just look back, but also look at our current state and consider how that history points us to where we are now and the issues that we're dealing with now.
1: Yeah.
2: And I think that for Latinos, we have to grapple with a number of questions around that like what is our relationship to that and certainly of course we know that there are uh afro-latinos we know that there are black latinos uh we know that that is a population that is often erased that it, that often sort of um uh, gets either lumped in with a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of this generic black population uh and what i mean by that not that black people are generic but what i mean is the sort of catch all category that doesn't always acknowledge the diversity that exists. Right.
1: Like that, like that sad Biden moment, right? There's not a lot of diversity in the black. Right. That's not exactly. true.
2: Exactly. That's exactly it. There you go. Thank you for, for bringing that one back in. That's exactly it, right? Uh, and so we know that that population exists also in the Latinx, the Latino. Uh, community and some would even say no we're not a community because we're so different right mm-hmm. uh, there are so many different streams uh within that represent this larger category of you know and there's this whole conversation of latinidad is 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 canceled and right yeah. But before going off on that tangent in terms of grappling with our histories figuring out where we all fit as as latino people as latinx people that Are racialized in different ways in this country, right? And and I would even say, politically speaking, how have we benefited from the black struggle? Mm -hmm. I think we have to we have to grapple with that question. How are some of the rights that we have as as Latinos? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: How have those rights emerged from
1: I think that's right? And,
2: and conversely, I would also add that I think there are places where we can point to commonalities and um, there are places where, so I like to point out in the, the region where I did my research in Santa Ana, California, you know, there was like Mendes versus Westminster, which was the precedent to Brown versus Board of Education. It was one of the key precedents. Uh, and so I, if you don't know about Mendes versus Westminster, uh, please look it up. Um, a predominantly Mexican-American families that uh, fought against segregation. But one of the leading plaintiffs was Felicitas Mendez, who was Puerto Rican. Wow. So, so we got a Puerto Rican presence in there. Um, so I like to point that out as well. And she likely would have been identified today as Afro-Puertorriquena. So, so again, we see these intersections even back then. That, that are present, and so yes, there's this ongoing dialogue happening um, historically that we can point to, but I think as as Latinos, rather than saying, well, it's all about us, you know, we we put in our work, and we did put in, you yeah. know, th- there is that history of of also struggle, you know, when we think of like the Young Lords and, um, it, you know, and the work that they were doing in the predominantly Puerto Rican communities, and so we have to think about Yes, our struggles, but also think about how really Black struggle has given us so much, right?
1: Yeah. I think this is an incredible. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that one of the things that I could think of in parallel, because as you've said, we're, we're not doing a great job. Latino communities are not uniformly doing a great job at thinking about just the the role of immigration at this point in the the life of the nation, and uh, maybe if there isn't an easy uh, sense of identity, right? Like every Latino coming across the border is somehow, you know, us is somehow part of a greater Latino community in the United States, even if it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that keeping a very close eye on what happens uh, with immigrants is. Uh, is just such a growing um, place for, among other people, people of any kind of faith to think through, because this is a justice matter, right? So um, how we how we treat immigrants, how we uh, how we construct the relationship between people who are coming in, and and working, very often working, but working without status, working without protection. I think what's going to happen. I think if we could really see that that is actually a question of um, labor from which we all benefit, we could all benefit from thinking through, um, what are the parameters that we're asked to agree to as a labor force, right? And, and immigrants are asked to take really the, the, the worser, um, the worser dynamics of that, but, but they're not isolated. Does that make sense? Like the entire labor as a laboring force, Um, We've lost a lot of protections, right, as in the U.S. So thinking about um, immigrants as a place where we see the real ugly fray of those ends that are overall fraying, right, that's a way of thinking like we have a common interest, not just to do justice to immigrants, but to do justice to ourselves. I think this is an incredible lack of um, self-awareness that is not just historical, Um, But yeah, it draws from history, a lack of knowledge of labor history, which leads me to a question about California. I don't know if you were wanting to go somewhere. (laughs) but I I think of California as some place where we have um, a repository of his like a history there with um, the farm workers movement, where we have uh, real labor history does not only there right like I can think of unions in Detroit and Chicago, but places where America's um, knowledge about labor and and the struggle for fair wages in labor for to fair conditions, right? That's that's got a strong California story, um, and I wonder, did you see any of that reflected in how Californians voted this year? I think I posted posted this to you um, as a question around like how well Bernie Sanders did in California.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that your question really. It's hits the nail on the head. I think that uh when so as you know, I you know I'm here in Boston, but many of the uh communities that I've conducted research within are in Southern California and I'm originally from Southern California, and so uh I am now bicoastal, I guess you could say. And well, you've you've been, you know, obviously part of different geographies as well, which kind of you know is eye-opening, right? And so What I've seen, yes, what I've seen in California, labor does play a huge role in it. And I think that for many Latinos, um, there was really a force behind uh, Bernie Sanders.
1: Uh, Oh, that's right. I'm just thinking of the way that I think most Latino dollars this election season went to Bernie Sanders.
2: Yes, yes. And I, I certainly saw in terms of the grassroots mobilization in California, I mean, there was just... Uh, As far as the communities that I'm connected with, it it was impressive in terms of the grassroots organizing that was happening. And really what I, the other thing, besides just the presence and and sort of numbers, besides just numbers, in terms of who was there, and I will say a lot of young people, a lot of young uh, Latinos in Southern California were really Leaning in that direction, and, and that's been interesting to me being out here in Massachusetts where um, we had a, you know, a strong uh, presence, a strong showing for uh, Warren, for example, um, and what I noticed in with my contacts in Southern California was that really labor, the, the you know, the labor organizing was a huge factor there. Uh, Really, As you pointed out. So I think in some ways it confirms what you're asking that labor, I think the history of labor has shaped our notions of ethnicity. So it isn't just immigration. Immigration is is a major part of our history and of our identity. I, I do believe that within our communities, but I'll also say labor because such a high percentage of the people in our communities have started their lives here in the U.S. as working-class people, Uh, whether they've experienced uh, upward mobility into, you know, other, you know, social strata or whatnot, but uh, many of us have come from working-class families and communities and still feel very much tied to those communities. I I still feel like a Mm working-class guy. I mean, you know, I'm a uh, you know, I we have PhDs and you know, we, you know, you and I both and, you know, work for different institutions and I still feel like a working class guy. And it, that's a whole other conversation, right? But a lot of it has to do with I think how much of my mm-hmm. identity has been rooted in that working class experience um with my parents, with my grandparents, with you know, going back generations, right? And that's not to say that there aren't immigrants that arrive from Latin America that are, you know, educated and skilled and all of this. Sure. There is a, there is sort of a a segment of people that, that do arrive in that way. I hear a lot of them go to Miami. (laughs) So, um, so, but but seriously, I have, I have heard that Miami tends (laughs) to get um, a higher proportion of uh, educated
1: Ah. immigrants.
2: immigrants from Latin America, from like South America and other places. Um, uh, and yeah. also gets, you know, also gets refugees and other folks as well, but uh, that, are, that are working class. But um, when you look at the geographies of uh, Latino demographics, uh, that the labor and class really plays into a lot of these voting patterns, I think. And so, in, in, Southern, in the Southern California communities, I've seen, yes, the labor piece. And then the Catholic Church, I think, has really um, done a good job of partnering with um, some of the local organizers around labor. So I have seen connections there as well. Um, the other thing I'll add with my um, Southern California connections, there is now an emerging group around issues of immigration that are more evangelical-leaning. Uh-huh, and. I there, there have been initiatives like that in the past, but what I've seen now, I think, has been much more grassroots, where I, whereas I think some of the prior initiatives were more about, hey, let's get, you know, let's get these voices into the White House. Let's, um, which, you know, leads back to uh, the brother you mentioned earlier, right? You know, kind of one phrase that's, that's been around with uh, John Fea, I believe court uh, evangelical. Court
1: evangelicals, court evangelicals right? yes. Well,
2: so I think that some of the prior generations were thinking more that way. And I mean, they're still around, of course. They're still around. But more thinking, can we get into the courts of power? Whereas what I'm seeing now is, and of course, the Catholic Church has been involved in this. Mainline uh, Protestants have been involved in, you know, the sanctuary movement, for example. Mm-hmm. Now we see some evangelical churches getting on board with similar types of movements in Southern California, for example. And what, what's caught my attention is that many in, in many cases, there are Latino leaders that are highly engaged in this. Whereas when we look at other movements, sometimes we'll see maybe like mainline Protestants, for example, that are predominantly white that are, you know, doing some of this work, like in the, uh, in the sanctuary movement, for example. Uh, But what I'm seeing now among some of these evangelical Protestants is that there are Latino churches involved in it and Latino pastors. So I, I don't think it's a surprise that there's a correlation between some of the people that are involved in those movements, or most, I'll say most, if not, you know, nearly all of those individuals and leaders involved in those movements. Uh, and being against Trump's policies, being very vocal against Trump's policies. I think that there there is a strong correlation there. So I would say that's the sector within sort of Latino evangelicalism and Protestantism that isn't afraid to challenge Trump. Whereas you've got other folks that are either not gonna, say that they're against Trump or, or are just going to flat out say, no, he's our president, we support him. <laughs> are so, going to be
1: for Trump. Well, yeah. OK, I want to kind of disrupt your binary. And then I, I guess we have to go. And then maybe we could do this again sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so one thing I noticed is if you can see demonstrated excitement for Bernie Sanders' character, and that a lot of Latinos, for instance, in Texas and some in California now look to be leaning Trump right yeah I what I'm seeing is a consistent uh, penchant for populism right yeah. because yes I am so I'm thinking of someone like Warren who actually Warren's approach seemed labor roughly labor analogous yes yes I think maybe her style uh, was not exactly a populist style right mm-hmm. and I think also she didn't have a super strong anti-elite discourse so my question to you is do you think it's fair to say in, in 2020 one thing we might have learned is that whether we're talking about trump on one side or Bernie on another latinos don't seem to be allergic to a populist discourse
2: yeah i think you're right i think you i, I think you're right and i think that um, well i know you said you, you wanted to disrupt the binary. I mean, in some ways, I, I, but I think, I don't necessarily think you're setting up a binary. I think that it's a spectrum, right? But I think that along that spectrum, we have some, we have critical masses on both sides of that spectrum. Mm. And, and then there are, you know, of course there are the, you know, there are moderates there, are which in the Latino churches that I've interacted with, you know, the moderates are folks that are going to say things like it's all in God's hands. We just need <laughs> to, you know, pray and, Uh, you know, allow God to work it out. And uh, we don't want to divide. We don't want to talk about these issues that are going to further divide us, things like that. Right. But I think that what I've seen and, you know, Latino, the Latino population is, is young in the U.S. um, relative to other communities. You know, we're, we're talking about a young population. And yes, I think there is a support for the more progressive wing Mm-hmm. Uh, of uh, the Democratic Party, or or even in some cases maybe a, another party, you know. But but there is support. There is a strong critical mass, I think, that that really wants uh, something more left leaning, something more progressive. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we saw that I think with Bernie. But as you said, around the populism, right, mm-hmm. and the kind of anti-establishment, anti-elite, mm-hmm. right, because again. Our people's are still substantially working class, tied to these experiences of labor, um, and then on the flip side, you have, which is amazing to think that you know these are in some ways two sides of the same coin. But, uh, well, that's reductionistic, right? I, I don't I don't want to say that it's too.
1: Bernie's sides. not a mirror image of Trump. That would be yeah, no, no, Bernie, not, but
2: yeah, that's not what I'm trying to say. But what I, what I mean is the. And the, uh, the populism side that you pointed yeah. out, yes, that I think that there are people that, because of this tendency towards populism, see themselves in Trump. And I think, and you pointed this out earlier, so I, I want to make sure we don't lose that point, which is the gender piece. Uh, oh, yeah. I think that there are a lot, a lot of men. Yes. That, ah. Yeah. Uh, what's going on, brothers? Like, okay. I don't know. Okay. But, Hermanos, yes. what's happening?
1: <laughs> okay three things i gotta like rapid fire this out and then if you want to have a last word uh one i oh my gosh my i just had like a supernova of thoughts um one if it's true that latinos can be described as in any way populist leaning at least in this election not i it one you know sparrow does not a summer make i think one swallow that's the phrase so you know, it, it, we would have to do more thinking around that in prior elections. But if that's true, then it it disrupts this idea of white nationalism being the equal of populism. Does that make sense? So populism right now often gets described as a white nationalist movement. If Latinos are also, you know, in this fold, it it does at least a little disrupt this this um this optic. Two, I wonder about um. I, so you might have seen Kristen cobes Dumais' "Jesus and John Wayne" with that masculinity, the toxic masculinity of Trump. I think is what that book is about. Um, mm-hmm. But I know plenty. The whole idea of like Mexican, I'm just talk for Mexicans at this point. Mexican machismo, right? Um, I wonder. My our dear friend Mimi Waraboko was saying is you know is Trump a shadow self to to Protestant men who have had to surrender their machismo. Um, in the in, And that's a sort of older, we can't do justice to this idea because that was a sort of older idea from Elizabeth Brusco's, the reformation of machismo, which was this early um, analysis. I think that was based in Chile, was it? Um, about how in switching from Catholicism to Protestantism, what Protestant women got was a reformed macho for the home who would now earn money and stop drinking and carousing so much so that was like elizabeth brusco's one of her early explanations of why catholic women were were leading the charge to become protestant women so now i guess i don't even know if i'm actually landing on anything that can end us but i would say to you you know in, in trump and in you know, if we see some Latino embrace uh, Latino men embracing Trump, and even some women, are we seeing a sort of resurgence of the repressed machismo in a class of men who supposedly had to surrender that to become Protestant? I'll give you the last word. No more tantalizing questions at the end.
2: <laughs> well, I. It's yeah, just. A I, I don't know. I think you should have the last word, but um, I I think you're right. I I agree with you. I think that in this that really I think. Fits in with what I've been seeing in the communities I've interacted with that I've done research in, where uh, I've seen even, you know, households divided where, uh, you know, a- along the lines of gender. Really, really, it's it's super interesting to me, but also sad that uh, we have uh, so many men, Latinos, Latino men, that are identifying uh, with those aspects of trump those elements like well he says it like it is you know and he's afraid to speak his mind he's a real leader you know he's not a weak leader he's a a strong strong man he's a strong man man, right he's a macho man i mean essentially is what they're saying right uh he's he's macho and and we like that right and so i think there's this there is this expectation uh or or rather this this sense of you know that that aspect of us has been subdued, and uh, you know in and and I, and I like what uh, what my colleague uh, Nimi Wariboko has said about that that specific. Uh, I've heard it. I've heard him describe it also as sort of living vicariously.
1: Oh, that's right. Through faculty with Mimi.
2: Yeah, yeah, the, living vicariously through yes. uh, Trump, like he gets to say things that that we want to say, but well then what happens is eventually others start to say it too, you know? Oh
1: yeah, it spreads.
2: Yeah, yeah, it gives people the right to do it.
1: Yeah, Dr. Waraboko, who has told me, you know, in Trump, you know, becoming rich, flaunting it, you know, sleeping with tons of women, uh, there is like a a masculine id, right? That is seeing, ah, you know, um, and I, I don't want to overgeneralize this is, you know, I think this is a theory at this point, but it was one I thought was interesting. And when we look at there is already the through Elizabeth Brusco's work, there was already the idea that this machismo had been at issue and it had been reformed. So to see Trump, to see an embrace of Trump does suggest, I think
2: one thing that does excite me is the fact that this year we have the largest Latino electorate from any year. And a major portion of that group is young. So we're talking about a young population, many people that are gonna be voting for the first time. And so many of these are folks that vote more progressively. And so I think that there is hope for the future
1: you know, um, I'll just, I'll, I'll chime in on that. I'll say, uh, yes, We after we've done all this nuancing of different generations, uh, gender, different locales, I think it is exciting to think about the influence of Latinos at the polls and the age, um, as you're pointing to, like, we get to revisit these issues with a new class of voters mm-hmm. who are thinking afresh um, the relationship between, our um, ethnicities, plural, and how we are um, going to show up at the polls and influence the the direction of our country. Um, I too am excited. On that note, Jonathan, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and fellow sociologists of religion. And I, like you, will be biting my nails first week of November.
2: Well, I mean, for me, it certainly has been an enjoyable experience. Um, Thinking through some of the highs and lows of this season, I think there is hope there, uh, but I would definitely enjoy continuing this conversation.
0: The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.